The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. How is your work life going? Business? Home? Social? How about your health? Could you make some changes? Of course you could, but how and where to start? This is Turn the Page with Hemda Mizrahi. In this program, we'll help you identify and make the changes in your life that need to be made. And by doing so, increase your potential for success. And now, here's your host, Hemda Mizrahi. Welcome to Turn the Page. I'm Hemda Mizrahi. Today's episode focuses on a practice that's essential to your effectiveness as a leader, no matter what sector you're in or where you are in the world. This practice is called mindfulness, and it's increasingly sought out as a key component of executive training, one that enhances the results of core processes like goal-setting, collaboration, decision-making, and risk management. Dr. Josh Ehrlich joined us virtually from Bar Harbor, Maine, to provide guidance on what mindfulness is and how you can practice it. Josh is an executive coach who specializes in teaching mindful leadership to senior leaders and their teams. He's worked with over 50 of the Fortune 100 companies and is the author of Mind Shifting, Focus for Performance. Josh, I'm so thrilled to have you on the show. Welcome. Thank you so much, Hemda. Great to be with you. You talk about a couple of the life experiences that prepared you for the coaching work you do today. One is growing up playing the violin, and the second, as you describe it, is as a reformed neurobiologist, you studied simple and complex nervous systems in leeches and monkeys. How did those experiences train you for your work as an executive coach? Yeah, I think they were pivotal. Um, Playing the violin growing up was all about how do I learn something the way I can hear it and how can I focus on the process and not just the performance, right? So a lot of our clients, the leaders that we work with, are trying to perform better and they get so focused on outcomes and results, they lose the process and the how. And so learning to play the violin was all about the process, the how, to get to that performance outcome. So... That's where it started for me. And then in, in undergraduate at Yale and graduate school at NYU, I was studying simple and complex nervous systems, leeches and monkeys, and I think that was great training with green executives. You know, that's mm-hmm. <laughs> we find leeches and monkeys. But, no, seriously, um, it was all about learning simple and, and complex systems. And that's really been the theme in my journey is how do people learn effectively in order, again, to perform. So... That's basically my work day-to-day is coaching senior leaders um, who are in very demanding jobs but need to look at how they get better. And in order to do that, they need to step back from the list of tasks, from the list of outcomes, in order to look at the how. And mindfulness is a great tool for that. It seems like a very advanced and evolved lesson that you learned playing the violin about focusing on process and not worrying as much on, about outcomes. Yeah, I mean, it was not an explicit um, message. It was just part of the training, you know, in in any performance, in athletics and um, arts, there's so much practice time. But when we talk about leadership, there's not a lot of practice. It's all performance. And that's a problem in terms of learning. With the extreme focus that there is on outcomes and measurement in business environments, how do you convince them to focus more on process? It's a great question, and it's a challenge. <clears throat> there is so much pressure on everybody um, to do more with less. And so, actually, some of what's helped me is pain. People are just flat-out exhausted, and if I can give them a tool like mindfulness to help them relax, to help them be more focused and clear and make better decisions, take better care of themselves, the skepticism, the pain, you know, it melts away. Um, 
it's not a magic bullet. It's not a cure-all. But if I can give some people relief, then the shell, their skepticism, their um, not you know wanting to let go of outcomes gets a bit more relaxed. And, and so that's, that's what's helped. Another thing that's helped a lot is the credibility of the research that's just exploded over the last five years showing the impact of mindfulness on physical health, on emotional resilience, on intelligence. We can be 10 IQ points smarter when we practice mindfulness. And we can be another 10 IQ points smarter when we stop multitasking. So, you know, we can be just much more effective. The popular media has also jumped all over mindfulness. And so that that's helped so that when I come into the room, it's not the first time people have heard the topic. I was noticing on the website for the Institute for Mindful Leadership that there was a research study that was referenced, a multi-year study at a Fortune 200 company that reported that the mindfulness training that was conducted produced between a 31% and a 48% increase in five areas, which were focus, personal productivity, ability to prioritize employee satisfaction, and also performance under pressure. There's, there's so many research outcomes coming out, both within companies but also in the lab, to show the impacts that we can have when we show up. And, and so we should probably talk about definitions. What are we talking about when we say mindful? Because it's a little bit of a strange term. Um, mindfulness means being focused, as in in the present, but with a quality of openness and engagement. Right. So, so it's present focused and open attention with this quality of engagement. And, and that quality is so important because we think mostly of mindfulness as focus and concentration, but we forget that aspect of how we treat ourselves. The attitude of kindness and gentleness towards ourselves is so important for the learning. If we take that attitude, failure is not failure. It's an opportunity to learn. It's not a crushing defeat of our ego. It's actually, oh, let me learn something new and what I can do better. It was interesting also to see related to that on the same website, the Institute for Mindful Leadership, that a partial definition that was offered is mindful leaders embody leadership presence. Yeah, I actually think presence is an outcome more than a definition, and and I teach leadership presence, but I start by teaching mindfulness, because if you show up, that's the core of being present and, and having presence. But what does presence mean? Presence means having the ability to attract attention, right? Gravitas, same thing, is a gravitational force that attracts attention. And we attract attention when we show up mindfully with all of ourselves. So presence, I think, is an outcome of that. And how do you put it into practice? So the unfortunate thing is that mindfulness has become equated with meditation. And there is a million different ways to meditate, and mindful meditation is one of them, but mindfulness does not mean meditating. Meditating is just one way to practice mindfulness. It's a great way. But most of my clients, most of the executives I work with, will never meditate. And so if we keep pushing meditation as the way to be mindful, we're going to lose um, a lot of hearts and minds here. So simple ways. I can be mindful when I take one breath and just notice my belly moving in, out so we can come back to ourselves physically our body is a great anchor for our attention right we can simply do things like turning off our screen when we're on a conference call and people on the radio now listening if you're doing many other things at the same time i invite you to (laughs) see what it'd be like to shut down your work and just be here and listen at this moment so you're creating a construct in a sense, you're creating the conditions that can help you to really be focused and present by avoiding having those temptations in your face. Right. Exactly. So a lot of mindfulness is constructing an environment where we're not continually distracted. If our email, if Outlook is open with that little notification that tells us how many unread emails, we're going to be driven nuts. <laughs> we're going to be constantly called to, to look at that. And even if you know, laptop, cell phone, or not on. There's some research that suggests that if you and I are having a conversation and there's a, an iPhone or a tablet on the table in front of us, even if it's off, we're going to have a more superficial conversation. 
because part of our brain is thinking, what am I missing? We're worried about opportunity cost. Exactly. It's, it's um, you know, fear of missing out, what people call FOMO. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. you know what, what, what am I not, you know, what's on that other channel? Um, as opposed to what's here in the moment now that's possible. And so it affects so many aspects of good leadership, right? So listening is a core of leadership. We don't listen often because we're distracted. And a lot of that's by the stuff in our head. We're preparing our next statement or we're reacting to what's being said instead of really just letting it wash over us, letting it come through us and absorbing it, digesting it before we react. So mindful listening is such a powerful practice, just letting our mud settle, letting our mind quiet, noticing ourselves, listening to ourselves, listening, as my friend Gregor Simon McDonald says. Can we listen with a quiet mind? It brings to mind being in meetings and some of the clients I worked with in a coaching capacity who, who gave me the feedback that their manager said they need to work on being more vocal. Yeah, and sometimes, right, we have the opposite problem when people are, are too self-controlled or afraid of making a fool of themselves, saying the wrong thing. And there it's a different thing. It's about trusting your intuition, trusting your gut. Um, so, yeah, we have clients in, who need to move in both directions. Certainly, I was thinking you know, more about the pressure, actually, that people face hmm. in terms of showing their skills, showing their contribution in very concrete ways, like speaking up in meetings. Where you're bringing up the point that it's very important in the moment to allow yourself also to digest and not necessarily to react right away. So it's more that I was thinking about, I guess, some of the challenges when it comes to bringing this type of work to organizations when there's that kind of culture in place. Yeah, and and it's not just corporate culture, it's American culture. We so value extroversion and that quick, on the fly, spontaneous baffle gab. You know, and so extroverts are are valued and prized, and introverts are not. And so people who are quieter and do that reflection and digestion first, um, they get passed over often and need to learn to assert. And we also need to value them more. So it's it's that balance of listening and speaking. Thinking about the practical application of mindfulness in the workplace, is there an example that you could share? that illustrates some of the practice strategies that you suggest? Yeah, so one of the pieces you mentioned earlier, creating the environment, um, is setting boundaries, right? So one aspect of setting boundaries is just the door, or if we're in a cubicle, do we have a signal that we can give to our colleagues that we're busy? And do we take every interruption, right? Often it's without that physical boundary of an office door that you can close, it's very hard to set your own boundaries. So people come over and knock you on the shoulder and say, hey, can I interrupt you? And you, you have a choice at that moment. You can accept that interruption, right? And that's what we typically default to. Or we can curtail it. We can go to a conference room. We can actually work from home. People say they get a lot more done at home. You can make it so that you set a boundary. You're not available. You're there to do thinking time, and you're not available for interruptions. That's not always possible, but the realistic... T, the T in the ACT method here, is triage, which is to say, Hemda, when do you really need that? Do you need it right now, or can it wait two hours? Can I come back to you a little bit later and talk about it? I'm in the middle of something. We don't give ourselves the permission to set that boundary. So setting boundaries is a mindfulness practice, being aware we have that authority and ability to say no in that moment. So we have connecting with the movement of your belly, which actually produced such a nice relaxing effect on me. <laughs> and I would guess when you have a little bit of that relaxation effect, it really centers you. It's huge how tense we get through the day. So just as you're listening to our show now, notice your belly breathing. and Notice how that relaxes you. Just your movement of your belly in and out. And in out. And you don't have to do anything. There's no trying to control your breath. You're not trying to breathe deeper or slower here. It's simply noticing and allowing instead of efforting and controlling. That's the attitude of mindfulness. Noticing and allowing 
Now, notice that's different from the attitude when we're curtailing that interruption. There's an assertiveness there. There's a strength and a force there. But when we're practicing mindfulness for ourselves, within that safe space, there's a kindness and a gentleness to it that's essential. I love the simplicity of that. And I can imagine in any situation or moment in time that it can bring everyone back to the, that practice that you talk about. We talked about digesting what's being said, balancing talking and listening, setting boundaries, including saying no, this doesn't need to get done right now, setting aside some of the electronic devices, literally putting them out of sight. Mm-hmm. We have just a couple of minutes left for this segment. Is there anything that you would add in terms of practice? Yeah, so I, I ask groups when I teach how often they check their email. And even a couple of years ago, people you know, were checking 10, 15, 25 times a day. Now, pretty much the consistent response is constantly. We're basically addicted to constantly checking our email. And why is that? Well, it is stimulating the same brain pathways as addiction. So it's like a chemical addiction. In fact, it's more powerful in some ways. The withdrawal we get when we cut off from email. But what we find is if managers, if leaders can decide intentionally to just check three times a day, say. I know that's very hard and in some roles not possible. But if you can check more consciously and intentionally as opposed to constantly, if, even if not three times a day, you'll have the same stress reduction as any other mindfulness practice, any other stress management practice you can learn. Just checking less. So this is about noticing the impact that constant checking does. It's basically distracting ourselves. It's taking ourselves off task into somebody else's business, somebody else's needs, somebody else's request from us, as opposed to what we want to be working on, what we want to be thinking about. And you've seen that that works well with executives in practice? It's not practical for many people to just tick three times a day. What's practical <laughs> is, to, is to think about when it's okay not to check. Is it okay not to check while I'm having dinner with my family, while I'm sleeping? on weekends and vacations. I know these are ancient words, weekends, vacations, but we've lost those words. <laughs> People don't even make those spaces anymore. They're always checking even on vacation. But also during the workday, can we have a period of an hour or two when we actually need to do some thinking time? We were hired to think, right? not to race and run. So can we make that intention and protect that space to do thinking, right? And not to always be checking in, into somebody else's request and, and demand or sending us information, but actually to be focused where we want to be focused. I could see how just that process of distinguishing between what's necessary and what's not necessary can have a really powerful impact in terms of building mindfulness while at the same time dealing with the realities that we face. Exactly. So when I'm with you, I'm talking to you, you're the most important person and the phone can wait. And when I'm on the phone, that person is the most important at that moment, and the email can wait. So it's making conscious choices about what we want to focus on in that moment. Thank you, Josh. I feel important talking to you right now. <laughs> and you are. I'm feeling it. I'm feeling your mindfulness. We're going to go to a quick commercial. When we come back, Josh will talk about tapping your values and purpose and living your vision how that enables you to cultivate another trait of mindful leaders, self-acceptance. Stay with us to learn more. Are you a business leader or owner who's ready for a lifestyle change? If conditions in your company's environment or marketplace are reducing your quality of life, now might be a good time to develop an exit strategy. Creating a transition plan enables you to pace your need for change while celebrating an enriching career. Ensure that you exit on a high note by enlisting the expertise of Hemda Mizrahi. Learn more at lifeandcareerchoices.com. Are you a business leader or owner who's ready for a lifestyle change? If conditions in your company's environment or marketplace are reducing your quality of life, now might be a good time to develop an exit strategy. 
Creating a transition plan enables you to pace your need for change while celebrating an enriching career. Ensure that you exit on a high note by enlisting the expertise of Hemda Mizrahi. Learn more at lifeandcareerchoices.com. You are listening to Turn the Page with Hemda Mizrahi. Got a question or comment for the show today? Please call in to 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to hosthemda at gmail.com. Now, back to Turn the Page. We're back. I'm Hemda Mizrahi, joined virtually by Dr. Josh Ehrlich, an expert in mindful leadership. Josh talked about what mindfulness is and how you can practice it. This segment will focus on how you can cultivate a key trait of mindful leaders, self-acceptance as distinct from self-esteem. Josh, what's important about highlighting the difference between self-acceptance and self-esteem? Well, essentially, in our culture and as social beings, we're wired and reinforced to feel good when there are extrinsic rewards, right? We're paid. We're, we have stuff and nice stuff, right? Status and approval. We get approval from others and they tell us we're good. We've accomplished things. You know, we win the race. We get things done on time, on a budget, whatever. And when all else fails, fantasy. Right? Kitty looks in the mirror and sees a lion. I, I'm great, right? I'm, I'm great. And we go shopping. We do all sorts of things to make ourselves feel good because we're living in that fantasy. None of that stuff do we really control. That's all extrinsic. And that's what I call self-esteem. The contrast, the complement to that, is to cultivate self-acceptance. And I mentioned that quality of mindfulness, which is a kindness, a gentleness towards ourselves. That's essentially what self-acceptance means. But there's some other aspects to it. We can feel good about ourselves because of that, how we treat ourselves, right? That's self-compassion. That's the core. But there's other... There's three other elements to self-acceptance. One is alignment. I can feel good about myself because I'm living in concert with my values and purpose. Right? I know why I'm working and where I'm going. I can self-regulate. I can take a knock. I can have a negative thing happen to me, and I can bounce back. That's the heart of resilience. And being able to manage our feelings, take that deep breath, and not just wallow in negativity, but center again is huge. All of those things help us face reality. So I can feel good because I'm dealing with what is. I'm not dealing with denial. And so when we cultivate self-acceptance and compassion, actually there's great research, Kristen Neff, University of Texas, showing us that leaders take in feedback better when they can treat themselves with kindness. When we teach self-compassion, feedback comes in and it doesn't get rejected. So there's a concrete implication for leaders and all of these pieces of self-acceptance are controllable. They're intrinsic. Right? I can decide if I'm living in concert with my values and purpose. Am I in con- connected with them or not? Right? I, can tr- I can decide how I treat myself with self-criticism and pressure or with kindness, and that makes all the difference. I would guess that people are very responsive to this distinction and to the work that you do with them to help them to cultivate self-acceptance because... We know that in the celebrity world, in the business environment, you could be really hot one day and then somehow you kind of fall off that pedestal and get treated differently. Right. right. We call it hero to zero, <laughs> you know, right. in one minute to the next. And yeah, that's that external stuff we just don't control. And you know, the, a lot of we do a lot of work financial services companies where the markets dictate a lot of their outcomes, and you know, portfolio managers and analysts and people in all sorts of parts of these firms are doing really well, focusing on their process, and yet the market one day can say you stink, the next day it says you're great, and you know what? Neither one is accurate. This is again, if we focus on our process and keep going not getting distracted too much by those short-term outcomes, we will get to the longer-term outcomes. So self-acceptance helps us ride those waves. It's what's going on for me in my process and how am I treating myself and am I learning. So self-acceptance doesn't mean passivity. 
It doesn't mean complacency. It doesn't mean self-indulgence. It's not about not growing and learning or achieving. It's about how you enjoy the process and get better at the process as opposed to like an athlete, you're looking at the score all the time and getting psyched out. Right. You don't want to be riding the wave of volatility that goes along with your field or the market. Exactly. You want to stay connected so you don't wind up feeling lost at sea somewhere. Right. And so concretely what this looks like is step one is what are my values and motivators? What, what drives me? What, what really makes me feel good about working and, and why am I doing this from a motivation standpoint? Then there's where am I going? What is my purpose? How do I, how do I get to meaning that's not just material and extrinsic and, and all those status approval pieces? Right? What is meaningful to me about my work? And can I define that? And if you look at those pieces, values, meaning, and purpose, and you find that you are in alignment, you're living true to them, but you're in an environment that's not conducive, that's a problem, right? Often we're in workplaces that are not supportive of the meaning and values and purpose we, we want to live. But the first step is to be alignment within ourselves. We talk about strategic alignment in companies a lot, you know, or be aligned with where the company wants to go. But there's another kind of alignment. Am I aligned within myself around values and purpose? And then I'm aligned with my team. And so once I can clarify what's important to me, then I need to share it with my teammates and have that conversation. It's incredibly powerful, the connections that that builds. How do you work that in organizations, having these types of conversations? What type of structure do you recommend? It's pretty simple. It's just called a conversation. You know? <laughs> well, just in terms one of frequency, one and, right? Well, because you can find yourself without realizing it if you get caught up and you really are back-to-back -back in your schedule out of alignment and you maybe didn't even realize that you got there. Right. So first is a regular frequency, at least weekly, if not more frequently, of thinking about big picture reflection, where am I going and how am I doing against that? Not just outcomes, but my process, my learning. So a regular diet of reflection is something we've really fallen away from especially in this country, because we're so action-oriented, we're so results-focused, we have to come back to, how am I doing? That question, let me look at that. Turning that flashlight back on ourselves to meaningfully reflect helps us learn faster and better. Once we've done that, we get clear on our values and purpose and we're good inside, then there's a regular conversation with our colleagues. And I think if you're a leader, you need to be meeting regularly probably at least weekly with your people. This is a place where I get frequent pushback. People say, well, I'm on a trading desk all day with my, my client, you know, my colleagues, my direct reports. I, I talk to them all the time. But that's different than a regular one-on-one, -on -one, which is in a closed-door setting, at least a half hour, where you're having a more in-depth conversation that can be more meaningful. And you can talk about things like values and purpose. That's not a quick transaction. We, we think that connections are built on quick transactions. They're not. We need time and space to foster strong relationships. You talked about recommending having that weekly conversation with yourself about values, meaning, and purpose. The one-on-one -on -one that you would have, how frequently do you think it's important to have that conversation? I think a weekly conversation with each direct report is important. You don't have to talk about values and purpose every week. But some of my clients do what they call a fireside chat and they recommend that monthly, and I think that's a good, good rhythm. So weekly as a one-on-one, -on -one, and then monthly as a more in-depth conversation. So weekly, you're taking care of some of the transactional details. But even there, even if it's just a half an hour once a week, within that, there's a pretty good formula that I've picked up and I teach. It's called the 10-10-10 model. And basically, that means the first 10 minutes, it's their agenda, right? What do they need to talk about? What do they need to get done? and ask you for advice around. The second 10 minutes is your agenda. What do you need to download and tell them and update them on? The third 10 minutes is the coaching and the longer-term stuff. How are they doing on their development, and how are they doing towards their longer-term goals? Thinking about that 10-10-10 model in your head helps you structure the time and not just get it consumed with what we typically do is that, you know, the transactions and tactics take up most of the time and then we're done and we never talk about development and feedback and coaching. 
So that's another part of the practice piece is actually if you have that type of organized approach, you can make space for the things that sometimes get shuffled off. And you could also have a shorter meeting. Absolutely. It's a more efficient meeting. So mindful coaching is an important piece of this. I mentioned mindful listening. Once we can listen mindfully, we can coach mindfully. And what does that mean? That means supporting somebody else's development, but without telling them what to do explicitly. Sometimes we need to give people advice and tell them what to do. But often that steals their own autonomy and ability to think for themselves. And if that's what we're trying to cultivate, we need to make space for them to think. So mindful coaching is a safe laboratory where somebody else can think better with you. I was just wondering if there are some techniques that you might recommend for supporting someone's own thought process around their development. Well, I mentioned time to think, right? So all of our direct reports and, and colleagues should get time for themselves to think. And, and we need to make time and space for that. The other thing is, you mentioned him earlier, the work environment. Can we create a team environment where we support each other's ability to think, right? So mindfulness, I'd like to say, is not an individual sport. It's a team sport. So if you get excited by the idea of mindfulness, don't just do it for yourself. Enroll other people in your team. Talk to them about how you can all help each other be more sane, right? literally sane. And that means not distracting each other. That means things like the 45-minute meeting, Right? Who invented the 60-minute back-to-back meeting? You know, it's an artifact of outlook in our calendars. It's just nuts. We're we're always running late and behind. We don't have time to go to the bathroom. You know, and God forbid, check email for the next meeting. Find out that meeting was canceled. You don't even have to go. So, can we construct work rhythms with each other, with our work group, to set boundaries, to set expectations on email response time and meeting length, that kind of thing? so we can really go together and be more clear together. This is an extension on the suggestions that you're offering on an individual basis in setting boundaries. How can you do that as a team then to perform more productively and also to enjoy the working relationships and the work more? Yeah. So some clients of mine have no meeting zones. Right. So one big financial services firm on Wednesday afternoon, they don't have meetings. It's time to think and get other stuff that they want to do done. We're so stuck in back-to-back meetings in a lot of companies, it just makes it so hard to go home. (laughs) At the end of an eight-hour day full of meetings, you're supposed to now get your work done. You know, it's crazy. Is there a particular practice that you have found, Josh, with your clients to be fairly easy to implement, and actually they wind up getting fairly short-term results from it? Well, you're talking about a team strategy or an individual strategy? Either an individual or a team strategy, since I would guess that you have to incorporate these strategies on a continuum and stage how you're implementing them and start with what's easiest for people to do and get good results on. So I've developed a tool I call my top 100 ways to be mindful. And it's both an individual set of tactics as well as another set of 30 or 40 team tactics. So there's a the whole bunch of ways to do this. But And I'm, and I'm happy to send all, any of your listeners um, a copy of this if they'd like and they can reach out. Um, but basically, this has to be customized for your team. Right? Depending on how your team works and what kind of work they're doing, none of these could be relevant, or all of them could. You really need to have the conversation as a team, how can we be mindful together? Right? And so one way is to talk about email expectations. Do we need to respond to email immediately, what researchers call telepressure? We feel the expectation to respond as quickly as possible. But maybe the better response would be a delayed response. So if you give me one more minute, I'll think, explain this. So I was teaching a group in a hedge fund, and hedge funds are notorious for being very fast, action-oriented places. And one person said to me during the program, he said, you know, if my boss, if the chief operating officer emails me, I want to email right back. 
I want to show him I'm incredibly responsive. I'm on top of it. And the fellow next to him said, you know what? If our boss emails me, I want to take my time and really have a good response. I want to be thoughtful in my response. I'm not going to email right back. And that's the point. Right? Do we need to respond to everything instantaneously? Or can we agree with our colleagues what the response time should be, unless it's an urgent matter? Can it be 24 hours? That can save us so much stress and chaos. Right, it makes sense because you're addressing also the issue of impressions. If I don't respond right away, what message am I conveying to my boss? Right, so worried about being criticized. Again, that's the extrinsic, external stuff. And will you know, will people see us as slackers or lazy or something? If we slow down, if we stop, if we're more mindful, will people think that we're checking out? And what I've found is actually, no, people find that we're checking in. <laughs> you know, we're tuning in, we're showing up more powerfully, more impactfully, because we're not shredded. Our intention is not moving in a hundred different directions at once. We were hired to think and not to race and run. And when we start seeing that, that that's our job, it changes everything about how we work. I like what you're suggesting about this transparency and this agreement that you have the opportunity to establish so that if you have concerns about how you're going to come across, you can address those at least and be reassured that everyone's working toward that same intention of minimizing distractions and having these regular checkpoints to ensure that there's alignment both for each individual within themselves and then within the team and the organization. So expectation management is critical, and that means clear communication, having the conversation. Don't just make the assumption. One of the things on my top 100 ways to be mindful without meditating list is don't make assumptions. Have the conversation, right? Think about what we're putting on each other. We, we have all sorts of expectations running a rampant with each other, and they're all assumptions, most of them, as opposed to clarifying what is my role as opposed to what I might think you think my role is and get all crazy in my head about. And that creates ease. Yeah. And ease is something that we don't have a lot of in organizations. And, you know, my, my vision is to create mindful leaders, teams, and organizations. And that is something we're, we're just moving in the opposite direction in most workplaces. You know, but ease is a great way to describe that and of the kind of environment I want to create because I think that environment is where people will actually bring their best and they'll be more productive. We worry that, you know, if we take our foot off the gas, we'll, be, we'll go slower. Actually, given how fast we're already going, taking the foot off the gas, we're going to make us go faster and be more effective. It's not about passivity, complacency, self-indulgence again. It's about being clear, focused, effective. Right, it's the synergy and the greater efficiency that stems from that. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yeah. We're going to go to a brief commercial. When we return, Josh will talk more about how you can bring your team and organization on board with mindfulness practices. We'll be back shortly. Are you a business leader or owner who's ready for a lifestyle change? If conditions in your company's environment or marketplace are reducing your quality of life, now might be a good time to develop an exit strategy. Creating a transition plan enables you to pace your need for change while celebrating an enriching career. Ensure that you exit on a high note by enlisting the expertise of Hemda Mizrahi. Learn more at lifeandcareerchoices.com. Are you a business leader or owner who's ready for a lifestyle change? If conditions in your company's environment or marketplace are reducing your quality of life, now might be a good time to develop an exit strategy. Creating a transition plan enables you to pace your need for change while celebrating an enriching career. Ensure that you exit on a high note by enlisting the expertise of Hemda Mizrahi. Learn more at lifeandcareerchoices.com.
You are listening to Turn the Page with Hemda Mizrahi. Got a question or comment for the show today? Please call in to 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to hosthemda at gmail.com. Now, back to Turn the Page. Welcome back. I'm Hemda Mizrahi, joined virtually by Dr. Josh Ehrlich, an executive coach who teaches mindfulness to senior leaders and their teams. Josh talked about how to build self-acceptance, an important trait of mindful leaders. He also started to talk about how you can make mindfulness a team sport in your organization. Josh, what other advice can you share about implementing organizational protocols that facilitate mindfulness? Sure. So some of these are not open to everybody, but I think there's an incredible zeitgeist in this country towards greater health in the workplace. And you see people wearing Fitbits, and I think that's been a, a great way to get feedback on how active we are versus sedentary. One of my clients has an on-site gym in every location and full-time trainers whose job it is to make sure people get down to the gym. It's so incredible focus because they believe that people's physical fitness will make them better employees, better at thinking. Right? These things overlap. When we take care of our bodies, our mind is sharper and more clear. It's great research on that. Um, it's not just that you know we don't get sick as much and get out of work as much, and that that's true. That's another benefit. But when we look at all these pieces together, we have healthier, more effective employees. But even if you can't you know get an on-site gym and trainers, there's other ways to be more active. Even if you can't get a standing desk, you can have standing meetings. Right? Guess what? They're shorter. <laughs> you know, people who are standing are more focused. They don't lean back in the chair and relax and just kind of zone out. You can be relaxed and dignified and attentive by standing. You can also have walking meetings, right? Change the frame. Get out of the office. These are all ways to clear your head, get new perspective, which is an aspect of mindfulness. I love this idea of standing and walking meetings. Yeah, so often we think of a, a you know a meeting as across the desk from each other, and that's such a non-conducive uh, you know environment for a good conversation. These one-on-ones we were talking about in the last segment. What if you got out of the office and did your one-on-one as a walking meeting? Go get coffee. It changes everything in terms of the tone and the atmosphere you're setting. There's another piece that I wanted to come back to around values and purpose, though, Hamda. We talked about sharing that with your colleagues and getting clear with that in yourself. And I've been so impressed in clients where we've had this conversation. And what's starting to come out is that people really want to give back to their communities. There's a social consciousness that is embedded in each individual employee that's kind of waiting to come out. And when we look at people's values and what they really want, that's meaningful to them, not just doing the work to make the almighty dollar for the company, but also giving back to the community. And that's an amazing way also to build leadership skills, community surface. So there's an organization, nonprofit company called Pixera that does a lot of work with many companies, including IBM, taking their leaders into nonprofits and into underprivileged countries where there's so much need, but there's also a great ability for leaders to learn service leadership, servant leadership, right? And to practice all sorts of skills that you don't have the opportunity to do in your day-to-day work. So getting out of your work environment and serving the community is an amazing way to get connected to your values and purpose, to align and build teams, and to, to also build leadership skills. I can see how that really builds engagement because you're able to fulfill more of your needs in the workplace. You talked about structuring meetings and work such that self-care can be accommodated as well. And this idea of giving back to the community, tapping into your values at work. Yeah. So I recently saw some research on engagement, and engagement has become a really hot topic for good reason, right? When employees are engaged, they're giving their all. And it's not just employees are giving their all. When employees are engaged, customers are happy (laughs) because employees are serving the customers. But what's the one biggest factor that will boost employee engagement? It's not pay not time off, right? It's not more rewards and recognition on the job. 
the one biggest factor by far is employees feeling a connection to the meaning and values and purpose of their organization. When they feel aligned with that, they're more engaged. That is the most powerful factor. So how do we tap into that? We ask them what they value and what's meaningful, and then we work with that. We have the conversation. Josh, you also work with organizations in terms of addressing values as part of the hiring process? Yeah, I think it's really critical that somebody matches the culture that they're going into. You know, I mentioned earlier, if you find yourself aligned internally but not aligned with people around you, there's a couple of options, right? One is to talk with your colleagues and try to get them to align with you and to, to have that conversation where you become closer. But the other option is to leave, you know, vote with your feet. If you're not in a place that's connected to how you want to live your life and where you're going, you should not be there. That is not healthy for you or the company. And same when you're talking about hiring processes, as you said, the critical thing is to figure out, does this person fit culturally? And what does that mean? That means, does this person have the same values that we do? Do they want to go to the same nirvana, the same promised land that we want to? Do they have the same vision? Can they share that? If not, that's not a good hire, whether or not they have the skills. Have you worked with clients in situations where there was an alignment and then somehow that alignment was disrupted and they were able to realign? Yeah, and sometimes it's just about re-clarifying um, what the vision is and, and really thinking about it in better terms. You know, some, some places there's just a bad, there isn't a good vision, you know, if I can pick on uh, Philip Morris, you know, that there's, there's no way that you can have a vision there that's really healthy and that people can get behind in a, in a you know, authentic way. But then there's other companies where, you know, I know of a chemical company that, um, you know, people in the company would kind of be shy and timid at the backyard barbecue saying where they work. And, you know, I work for a chemical company. It doesn't feel good. But the company decides, you know what, it's not just that we are about chemicals. We're about a sustainable future. And so they decided their vision was chemistry for a sustainable future. And it's not just a rebranding. It's a refocusing and aligning around what do we really want to do. We want to have a future. And we want all our employees to be proud of that and feel like they can work towards something positive for their children and their children's children. So some of it is messaging and repetition. Some of it is just reclarifying when you have a message just not aligned with what anybody would want to help and support. I would think that being in a growth process means that your values may change over time. Yeah. And certainly to your earlier question, with all the change we have, change can make us crazy and it can also wake us up and make us mindful. But it can get us off track in terms of what was the vision. And the, the companies that are really going to be sustainable and around for the longer term are able to come back to and re-clarify their purpose, re-clarify their vision, and have it be one that people can rally around. We have just a few minutes left. Is there anything else that you might want to add on this topic of mindful leadership? You know, I think we've talked a lot about the, the team and the organizational elements. I think so much of this is also practicing what we're preaching. You know, we can become an evangelist and try to get everybody on our teams to be more mindful and our organization to be mindful. But if we're not mindful ourselves, <laughs> that will show up pretty quickly. And our inauthenticity will take every, all the credibility out of our message. We have to work with this ourselves per, first, right? And so if we show up thoughtful, composed, centered, that's the best way to get other people to come with us rather than preaching and teaching and telling other people how we should do things. It's about being humble and open ourselves first. I can imagine also with the way that changes in the world that this is an essential skill set to be present. There's so much information that you can miss and you wind up, you and your organization can be sidetracked in a way that really has extensive costs. Yes. 
so many of my clients have lost billions of dollars because of bad decision making, poor judgment, you know. And so there's a lot at risk. There's a lot at risk for not being mindful. And we can create cultures that both manage risks but also are more innovative when we cultivate this quality of being open, being focused, not just running crazed and chaotic. The, you know, the sense of urgency is a very important thing in workplace, but we so often take it too far, such that I have to say urgency is now the enemy of clear and creative thinking. Right? There's excess of urgency in most workplaces. It's scattered. It's frenetic. It's not, it's not conducive to bringing out our best. Thank you, Josh. Thank you, Heather. I'd love to invite everyone listening to delve further in to Josh's book to learn more about the very helpful and invaluable concepts that you shared today, Josh. Mind Shifting, Focus for Performance, guides you through seven attentional shifts that are necessary for leaders and also provides invaluable tools and case studies through which you can improve the effectiveness of your organization. And I could see how this applies to any aspect of a person's life and um, that you can achieve a lot of improvement also in your family dynamics by applying these practices. If you'd like to engage Josh's coaching expertise, he can be reached through his website, globalleadershipcouncil.com, that's Global Leadership Council, C-O-U-N-C-I-L dot com. The website describes Josh's coaching and mindful leadership work and also offers you free access to his articles and videos on mindful leadership. If you have comments or unanswered questions about today's episode, I welcome you to email me at hosthemda at gmail.com and to stay connected by following me on Twitter at Hemda Mizrahi and liking us on Facebook at Turn the Page Radio. Until next week, remember to make the grass greener where you are. I'm Hemda Mizrahi, inviting you to turn the page. Thank you for tuning in to our program. Turn the Page can be heard live every Friday at 6 a.m. Pacific Time, 9 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until next week's show, enjoy your weekend and make one change in your life before then. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 